Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. the flight operations team at a regional airline and it was in my first week of work that I realized one of the main reasons I'd been employed was that my boss was planning about six months of leave that year. Our department was quite small, it was me and my boss and so my job was to learn how to do his job and then cover for him while he built his house. It sounded all right on paper but here I was in week three and I was sitting at the board table with all the other managers representing the technical division of flight operations. I felt like I didn't belong. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to advise or to do anything worthwhile. I felt afraid that someone was going to ask me, show my incompetence, reveal that I really didn't know what I was doing. I wonder if you've ever been in a context where you feel like you don't belong. Uh, Maybe at work, maybe on campus, maybe even turning off the Bible talks today. Do you feel like you don't belong because you don't know what happens? Maybe it's your first time. You've never been ushered into a lecture theatre before. Not sure what to expect. Can I reassure you, you won't embarrass yourself, you'll be fine. But maybe you feel like you don't belong because of something inside you, something that you've done, something you're ashamed of, something that if people around you knew really what you've done and what you're thinking, they wouldn't accept you or welcome you. Perhaps you were feeling all right until we read that passage that said, if anyone who bears the name of a brother or sister is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviling or drunkenness or swindling, do not associate with them. And you wonder if that list describes you. As we read God's Word, sometimes it can be pretty challenging and confronting. When we open up the Bible, I want to say we read it not like any other text that we're confronted with. Sure, our basic skills of observation, of comprehension, they're pretty similar. But when we open the Bible, It's not just another text that we can analyze and dissect. They're the words of the living God as He speaks to us as the creatures He has made. It's a bit like opening a personal letter from a friend. They're words that someone is speaking to us, communicating to us. And like a letter from a friend, they're words of love for our good. And so, as we open up this word, as much as it can feel confronting, can I encourage us all to humbly sit under it, to hear what our loving God has to say, And if you're feeling that it's a hard word, I encourage you that you've come to the right place to listen and not to run away and avoid. So will you join with me in praying that God would speak to us as we look at this passage today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you that we can gather to hear you speak to us today. Thank you that your word is always relevant and true and good. And as we come to a passage that is challenging and confronting, Please open our hearts and our minds to hear and to receive and to obey your word to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the heart of our passage today is the idea of judgment. And I must say, compared to last week, it's hardly the most sexy subject. In fact, the one judgment that our society seems to agree on is, don't judge others. Uh, From a quick survey, Michael J. Fox says, the least amount of judging we can do the better off we are. Not a bad start. Uh, Tupac says, only God can judge me. And Lady Gaga says, don't judge anyone, but also don't trust anyone. Uh, Michael Jackson, as we continue our pop icon, says, no one should judge what I've done with my life, 
Not unless they've been in my shoes every horrible day and every sleepless night. It's a bit more sobering, isn't it? Billy Graham then speaks up and he says, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. And if you want to get spiritual, you may as well go right to the top, wouldn't you? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, says, judge not that you be not judged. Or if you want to get a bit more personal, the Apostle Paul, just a chapter before in this same letter, says, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. You see, judging gets a bit of a bad rap. And interestingly, even in the Bible, there's warnings against judgment. And yet here we are, just a few verses after Paul wrote those words, with a passage that says that judging others is actually good and right and necessary for the people of God. But we're going to need to think hard about how that can be true when there's so much outside the Bible and even within the Bible that warns against judgment. So how can it be good and necessary? Well, in essence, because this judgment that chapter 5 is talking about among the people of God can actually save someone from eternal judgment, that judgment is actually a profoundly good thing. So we're at point one, judge to avoid judgment. We introduce the situation in Corinth in verse 1. So if you want to read with me, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Now there's lots that this passage doesn't tell us about exactly what's going on, but the basic picture is clear. A guy in the church is in a sexual relationship with his stepmom. Now, God's Word explicitly condemns that kind of a relationship in Leviticus 18 and verse 8. But Paul also acknowledges, look around you, it's generally accepted, this kind of sexual relationship is wrong. And so, the church is aware of it, but rather than disciplining the person, they've responded with arrogance. Literally, they're puffed up, maybe even proud of what's happening. And verse 6, in the same vein, condemns their boasting. Now, we're kind of surprised by this, I take it. How could you boast or be proud or be arrogant of such a horrible thing? Maybe they're proud of their progressive new freedom found in Jesus Christ. Or maybe their new and impressive teachers have convinced them that their new spiritual existence in Jesus means it doesn't matter what you do with your body. We're not quite sure why, but they are boasting, they are arrogant, and they've accepted this sin. Sadly, it's the same for God's people today. Accepting and celebrating sin is never a cause for pride. And yet, there are churches today that have decided to celebrate and approve and bless what God has said is wrong and evil. Well, the current issue that's quite popular uh, is blessing same-sex civil unions. This is not progress to celebrate what God says is wrong. Instead of arrogant boasting, Paul says in verse 2, rather you should mourn as you hear of this. And then there comes this shocking verdict at the end of the verse. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, take it that this removal, this drastic action, isn't just shocking for us. It was probably also pretty confronting for the Corinthians. And so, the rest of the chapter is really unpacking how this should happen and why this is necessary. And so, from verse 3, we read, 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, these verses probably raise many questions for us. But there's just one question I want you to ponder briefly with those around you. As Paul writes this, he really wants them to know that he's present with them in spirit. Why do you think that's so significant? Why do you think Paul wants them to know that he is present with them in spirit? Why don't you take 30 seconds, say hi to those around you, have a quick chat looking at this passage together. Why does Paul really want them to know that he is with them in spirit? I wonder if you thought that it was to encourage them to actually do what he's asking them. Uh, Paul's expecting a pretty significant mind shift and behavioral change amongst the Corinthians. They've been arrogant. They've been bold. They've been, well, perhaps even accepting and celebrating and encouraging their brother in this sin. And Paul says that needs to be a 180 degree spin around. No longer accepting, but condemning that behavior. No longer welcoming him into the fellowship, but actually saying that he doesn't belong in the fellowship as long as he continues in this unrepentant sin. And that would be awkward. And that would require a fair amount of humility for those who've publicly done one thing to change and do something different. And so Paul wants them to know that they can do that with the confidence, the assurance that he is with them and his authority is behind them. What does it mean for him to be with them in spirit? At a popular level, we might say to someone that we're with them in spirit. And I think we basically mean, I know I can't actually be with you, but I want to encourage you. So imagine that I'm kind of with you in some way. I'm on your team. But Paul seems to go further. Verse 4 seems to say he's really present somehow amongst them in his spirit when they're gathered together. And so some suggest that this is referring to the profound unity that God's people have in Christ by the spiritual union we have as the one body of Christ. And so as the Corinthians gather, Paul is part of that same gathering in a spiritual sense because he's connected through Jesus. Now, theologically, that's kind of true, but it's also kind of not specific in any way. That's true of every Christian and every Christian gathering. So is it a particular encouragement for them? I'm not sure. I wonder if Paul's got something slightly different in mind. I wonder if I could take you back to my awkward work meeting uh, from the start. As the managers were gathered around the table, a couple of us weren't there. There was two based up in Brisbane. Pre-COVID days, we weren't on Zoom. They called in. It was a teleconference. And it was interesting that though they were physically absent, through their words, they were present amongst us. Through their words, they had authority to act and to do stuff within the meeting itself, as if they were physically there. If you go one step further, say they couldn't call in, but they knew the agenda beforehand, they could have written something that could be read out that would carry the same force and authority in the meeting as if they were physically there. I wonder if Paul has in mind that he is present amongst them in, amongst them in spirit as this very letter that issues his judgment is with them as they gather as God's people. The authority of the apostle himself is there as these words could be read out and the judgment on this person enacted. I wonder if Paul's present in spirit is through this spirit-filled letter that he has sent to them. And I wonder if that isn't just a profound comfort and assurance for them, but also a powerful message for us. 
as we read these words, they continue to be as if the Spirit-filled Apostle is present and speaking to us. Or even bigger than that, it's not just the Spirit-filled Apostle, it is God Himself being present amongst us today and speaking to us today with the very authority of God Himself. And what is the powerful message these Corinthians needed to enact? Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And that language is pretty bold and confronting. But hopefully you also see that the purpose of this is clear. The purpose is his salvation. Judge this man now so that his soul may be saved, that he may receive forgiveness, that he may repent of this wickedness and so have eternal life and reconciliation with the God who loves him and sent his son to die for him. How they seek his salvation is showing the seriousness of his unrepentant sin, saying that he doesn't belong amongst the people of God if he's unwilling to listen to the God who he claims to serve. And the confronting way this judgment is described is delivering this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Delivering over to Satan sounds kind of like weird seancey kind of stuff. We shouldn't consider this as some weird spiritual seance that's taking place with some evil goal in mind. This is a loving and begrudging action that is taking place for the sake of this man's good, for his salvation. And the language I take it is a reminder that the people of God, the church, symbolically represent the kingdom of God on earth. This is the realm of salvation. This is the realm of life. And symbolically to leave that or to be excluded from that because you're unwilling to listen to the Lord Jesus himself is to be in the domain of darkness, in the realm of Satan, in the domain of death. It's not kind of some evil act. It's the reality that to leave the life-giving Word of God behind is to enter into death and put yourself under the Lordship of Satan. It is a serious and sober act of judgment. But it is loving and necessary for this man. Now, not quite on the same scale, but with the same intent, I've been blessed to receive a similar rebuke and judgment from a Christian friend. It was back in my first year of uni, I was a young Christian. I was trying to get my head around the newfound freedoms that I had. And an older Christian friend, a couple of years ahead of me, one day said words that I found hard, but were loving and necessary. They said, you call yourself a Christian. You share the name of a brother, and yet you're not living like it. It was the words I needed to hear. And God used those words of their judgment to bring me back to Jesus, to trust in His gospel afresh, and so to avoid eternal judgment if I kept walking away from God. Friends, would you be willing to love your brothers and sisters enough to judge when they are walking away from the truth and to speak loving words to bring them back to God? The goal is salvation, not damnation. But will you take sin seriously enough to talk together about this? to seek to love one another and so avoid that judgment of God. And we do this not just because it's good for the individual, but Paul says it's also necessary for the church. So we're at point three, don't celebrate sourdough. Have a read from verse six. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul now takes us into the kitchen to show us how serious tolerating unrepentant sin is for the whole church. And I think it's all about sourdough, you know, that delicious, flavoursome, chewy bread that is all the rage amongst middle-class millennials. I'm not sure if you're one of those. But have you ever tried making sourdough? And during lockdown, our family decided, amongst other new hobbies, to give making sourdough a go. Uh, what you need is some starter. This is a delicious-looking starter. Basically, it's flour and water that starts to ferment. Our kind neighbour gave us some of her fermenting flour. And this is what you have as the start. You add a whole bunch more flour and water and you mix it up and you've got this wonderful dough. That starter is your leaven. And as you mix it in, the whole dough becomes leavened and that's what caused it to rise. Those air bubbles are all the, the chewy, airy, delicious goodness. You mix it up, you leave it to rest, the leaven spreads through and then out comes your beautiful loaf. You see... If you don't use your starter, if you don't use your leaven, you end up with flatbread. Still delicious, but it hasn't risen. So it's a fairly simple concept. And Paul says you can think of the church in a similar kind of way. Unrestrained evil and malice within the church family, it spreads. It affects others, like leaven within a lump of dough. You cannot expect ongoing unrepentance in the church not to affect the whole body, not to affect the whole lump. It just doesn't work like that. Not with bread, not with the church. And so the Corinthians need to take action and judge this man, not just for the sake of his salvation, but for the good of all the people of God. But the question arises, once you've added the leaven and your dough is all leavened and mixed together, how do you go back? You can remove the unrepentant sinner from the, the gathering of church, but how do you take out the leaven from the dough? You can't do it, can you? You need a whole new lump of dough without any starter. And that's helpful for us to remember because in verse 7 we read, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. It can sound like it's up to us to somehow clean ourselves up, make ourselves new, and so be, well, this appropriate people of God. It sounds nice, but the reality is we can't do it ourselves. We can't just get rid of the leaven from the dough. We require someone else to do it. In fact, someone to start something completely new, to make something completely new. And as we keep on reading, that's exactly what God does. The rest of the verse explains that God makes the church a completely new lump of dough. You are unleavened, free from any of this contaminating evil and malice. Because we really are new, we then live that out. We cleanse out the old leaven because that's true to who our new identity is. That's authentic living. That's being how God has made us. And do you notice how God makes us this cleansed, new, unleavened lump of dough. How do you know you're really flatbread? How do you know you've really got this new identity? At the end of verse 7, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul, he takes us way back to an image, really at the start, the birth of the nation, the people of God. 
and says this is part of how the church is being formed. If we go back to Exodus chapter 12, we can read about that night as God's been working towards His final culmination, rescuing His people from slavery to death in Egypt. They would then go and gather a lamb, each household. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. That's the Passover lamb. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast on the fire. Notice what they eat it with? With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. You shall eat it in haste, it's the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and on all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." How do you know that you're new? Have you got this new identity? Well, the Passover is that reminder of how God has rescued in the past. And that was all pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who died as our Passover lamb. See, that Passover lamb died in the place of the firstborn in Egypt. And at Easter, we celebrate that the Lord Jesus Christ died in the place of all of His people. When Jesus stood in our place to take God's judgment against sin... That was our new birth. That was our new life. That was our cleansing. In Egypt, God saved all those who trusted His word of promise and painted the blood over their door frames. God's promise now is that all who trust His promise of forgiveness in Jesus' name are washed clean by that blood, made new into a whole new person, a pure, unleavened lump of dough. It's not the most flattering description but it's a glorious reality. And the associated picture there of the unleavened bread also fleshes out this picture that he's been using. See, they're left with such haste, they didn't have time to add the leaven and for their bread to rise. And so every year, along with celebrating the Passover, the Israelites got rid of all the leaven from the houses and they ate flatbread for a week. We read a bit in just the next verse, Exodus 12 and verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person should be cut off from Israel. Interesting again, that's about inclusion and belonging or, or being cut off. So this is now the image Paul uses for the church. They are fundamentally different to what they were before. Not just reshaped, decorated, a pinch of salt, some nice flour... No, they're a completely new lump, free from any leaven. The old way, life in rebellion against God, is gone. And so being true to themselves, they should not celebrate sourdough. They should not celebrate sin or impurity amongst them. Sin should be taken seriously as they live life with their new identity. And so, the judgment that they need to enact amongst the people is not only good for the person in their sin, it's good for the integrity of the whole church. Now, I think that kind of makes sense, even if it is a hard word. Uh, but one interesting thing to discuss amongst yourselves, in verse 8, leaven is characterized by malice and evil, but the new unleavened identity is characterized by sincerity and truth. Now, we don't normally consider those two as opposites, do we? Malice and evil, sincerity and truth. So why does Paul pick these two as the key characteristics of this new lump, the new people of God? 
don't you take another 30 seconds, have a chat together. Why sincerity and truth? I wonder if they are at the heart of what has formed this new lump and continues to shape it and direct it. I mean, Paul spent the first four chapters of this book uh, really unpacking the fact that it's the word of truth, the gospel, that has been preached with all sincerity that has actually formed them to be in this new lump. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. We proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is what caused them to move from being this leavened lump to a new unleavened lump. But we've also seen, I take it with Paul writing this letter, that God's word and the sincerity and truth of that continues to maintain the purity of the lump. It is what guides and directs God's people and is the basis for judging and discerning what is right. See, the character of God's people is word-centered. And that is to be taught with all sincerity and uphold with all truth as what makes and guides the people of God. And so I want to say as we read this word today about this new identity of God's people, if you haven't received God's promise, if you haven't trusted His offer of forgiveness for yourself, can I invite you and remind you that God is speaking to you and making that invitation today. It's a genuine offer that if you turn and receive Jesus' death in your place and His resurrection for you, then God offers to wipe the slate clean. Though we are like a lump of sourdough, throughout all of us we are turned in on ourselves and away from God, God offers to make you new, to give you forgiveness and hope and life, a new belonging in a new lump of dough with a glorious eternal future. So can I encourage you, if you haven't received God's forgiveness, to do so today. But if you do receive that forgiveness, or perhaps you already have, what does that mean for how we relate to the world around us? Should God's people cut ourselves off in order to maintain our new pure lump of dough status? Paul's pretty clear, isn't he? As we keep on reading, he's going to tell us that God's people must keep their difference, but not their distance from the world. Have a look from verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, it's a pretty sobering word. If you want to avoid all those who are sexually immoral or greedy or swindlers, those who take other people's stuff, those who are idolaters, where do you need to go? You've got to leave the world. That's the character of the world we live in. But we're not supposed to leave the world. We shouldn't cut ourselves off in communes, but rather we should be present alongside the people, sharing life with those who need to receive the life that Jesus offers. And as verses 12 and 13 say, our responsibility as Christians is not to judge the world, though more of that next week. Instead, it is to, well, judge those inside the church. But what does it mean to not judge the world? I take it not judging the world doesn't mean that we must always affirm or never evaluate 
or even avoid disagreeing with the world. You see, God made the world. He's the rightful ruler over the world. He knows what is best for all the people in the world. And it's good for us to speak up for that. It's good for us to advocate that as our democratic rights give us. Out of love and integrity, Christians should speak the truth in our world. But having done that, we should not then seek to punish those who act differently if they've rejected the Lord that we serve. So, for example, I might advocate for the rights of the unborn child. I might rally against abortion. But if my friend or my neighbor tragically has an abortion, I must not condemn them, but love them and walk with them. I can speak up for what I think is true and good and right and what God says, but I'm not to expect and judge others on that morality. Or say, more personally still, I can speak gently and lovingly with my friend who's addicted to gambling or alcohol or porn. I can share with them about God's way that is good for him. But I'm not to judge him and condemn him if he continues to live that way, rejecting God. God will judge him for his actions. I love him and support him, but I can share what is good with him. Christians must not keep our distance from the world, but we also mustn't condemn the world. But out of love and with gentleness, we can, I don't want to say we should, share a better way. But inside the church, it's a different dynamic. Having been saved from the judgment of God and made new, our lives should reflect the Lord that we serve. And so, if the world around us is characterized by sexual immorality and greed and theft and idolatry, those in the church mustn't look like that. We have a new identity. In fact, we should look distinctly different to the world around us on issues of sex and money and possessions and what we worship and what we live for. Paul's warning is strong here. If you don't, if you claim to be Christians bearing the name of a brother or sister and follow the world in these areas, Paul says you don't belong amongst the people of God. And that is confronting for many of us. The rest of the passage has made it clear that's actually a judgment that is for the good of the person and the integrity of the church. But I take it we need to unpack what this might look like a bit more. When is it helpful to warn a brother? When do we ever need to get to excluding a brother? For the Corinthians, the action was pretty clear. There's this person who is in this unrepentant, blatant sin. They should be excluded from the church gathering. But even then, Paul doesn't tell us what else has taken place. Has he been mourned once, twice, many times? Does he know what the teaching of the Bible is on this area? We shouldn't read this as a prescriptive text giving us a step-by-step process for kicking someone out of the church. But we should see that there is a time when people must be warned for their actions and it seems if they continue in unrepentant sin, be excluded because they are no longer sitting under the authority of God's Word amongst the people of God. But what does all this look like for us? I think we've got time for it. One last opportunity. What are the behaviors you think we are tolerating and not rightly judging amongst us as a group on campus? 30 seconds, last chat. (laughs) Not sure how you found that. That's a bit of a challenging question to consider. Uh, But I want to, before we come to the answer, come back to that opening question. Do you feel like you don't belong? Particularly, do you feel like you don't belong because of the sin that you're wrestling with in your life? 
particularly if this passage says that those who are sexually immoral or greedy or idolaters or revilers or drunkards or swindlers don't belong in the people of God. And I imagine amongst us, there are those of us struggling with sexual immorality and greed, various levels of idolatry. Uh, reviling is kind of slandering. Uh, maybe you get drunk or have been drunk in the past. Uh, swindling, taking stuff. Maybe you've taken something that doesn't belong to you. Does that mean that you and even I should leave? We don't belong in the people of God. I want to reassure you that I think the message of the Scriptures is very clear that God welcomes people into His family who are not perfect. There's one person who is perfect and that's the guy who died to wash us clean to bring us in. And this side of heaven, as long as we have life in these lungs before Jesus returns, we are works in progress. We will all continue to struggle with sexual immorality and greed and idolatry and reviling and swindling and even whatever else was on that list that I've forgotten. Uh, the expectation is not perfection. The expectation is that we humbly sit under God's Word and prayerfully ask for His Spirit to continue to conform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And that we do that in community, that we share our struggles with one another and we keep on pointing each other to God's Word and back to the example of Jesus as we wait for His return. If you are struggling with sin and seeking to live a life obedient to the Lord Jesus, this is not talking about you. This is talking about those who, it seems, aren't willing to listen to God, aren't willing to conform their lives to Jesus' example, aren't willing to listen to the Scriptures in an area of their life. And if that's you, that you don't want to hear what God has to say about an area of your life, if there's something that you're doing that you know is wrong and you don't want to change it, then this is a serious warning for you. But I take it for the most part, this does not describe us if you're willing to listen to God's Word and praying that He changes you more and more into the likeness of Jesus. So what does it look like for us to keep on living this out as a community? Well, firstly, I want to say, I'm generally encouraged that I think we do have a culture of taking sin seriously and encouraging one another to live for the Lord Jesus. But if there are two areas that I think we can keep on working on, I wonder if pornography and greed are two of them. I take it most of us know that porn is wrong. Uh, it's really harmful for those who make it as well as those who consume it. And it's everywhere. Our culture is so sexualized, sexual purity is really hard. And mobile phones give us just this unprecedented access wherever you are, whenever you like. And so it's a real struggle that I assume most of us have been exposed to, to varying degrees. The thing I'm concerned about is that because it's such a common struggle, that we normalize it or accept it as just part of life in this age. There's always forgiveness, and it, I take it, will be a struggle for most of us to varying degrees for most of our lives. But can I encourage you not to accept just a level of pornography in your life? To continue to work to put it to death, to continue to talk to one another about how you can put things in place. Uh, accountability is a wonderful step. Bring it out of the darkness into light and talk with a Christian brother or sister. Someone of the same sex is often really helpful in order to encourage one another to keep on bringing God's Word to bear in your life. Uh, there's some software that can be helpful. Uh, a number of us use this program called Covenant Eyes. As an organization, we think this is a really helpful way of expressing our culture of accountability. And so if you email coveyes at campusbiblecity.org, uh, we can offer a bit of a group discount rate 
And can I encourage you, that's a great way that we can do this together to keep on seeking to be above reproach and taking sin seriously. But otherwise, can I encourage you to take bold steps? Observe where you stumble and avoid that. Maybe you need to go to Kmart and buy an alarm clock so you can wake up in the morning while your phone stays in the living room overnight. Maybe you need a dumb phone. That might seem outrageous, but a phone with no internet connection that helps your purity is well worth it. Can I encourage you to take sin seriously, not to accept porn as part of life, and to continue to grow in your Christ-likeness? Now, perhaps our even greater risk and potential blind spot is our acceptance and even celebration of greed among us. Hey, greed's a bit slippery. Uh, it seems clear that for the Corinthians, the bloke who's sleeping with his stepmom is clearly crossed a line. But if greed is this excessive desire for stuff and for more, when does a normal desire become an excessive desire? I wonder if looking at the opposites of greed helps us here. I think the opposite of greed, and I've picked two, contentment and generosity. These are things that God loves. And if we are content with what we have and are generous with what we have, Surely that will help our, guard our heart against greed, against wanting more, against this constant pursuit of bigger and better. Greed is characteristic of the world around us. We're reminded of it in 1 Corinthians, we see it everywhere. Do we look different from those outside the church in how we will view and use stuff? Uh, there's a book that's been around for a while, Beyond Greed by Brian Rosner. Can I encourage you, this would be a great book to read together, to discuss together, to keep on evaluating our, our hearts and our assumptions in the area of greed. It's a huge topic for us, and I wonder if it's one that we've become a little complacent on over the last decades. Uh, a few brief comments, though. There's much that could be said. When you think about greed, so much of it boils down to having more money to buy more stuff, or better stuff, or bigger stuff. And where does money come from? Because the Bible's ruled out theft, it generally comes from work. And so greed often manifests itself at the grassroots at looking for more work, more pay, higher paying jobs, longer hours. And that's something which probably starts to affect you guys with your part-time work and looking for more shifts, thinking about internships and thinking about work after uni. Greed filters through in the desire and the longing for more money that enables the lifestyle of greed whether it's clothes or tech or holidays or comfort or cars or houses. And so a couple of questions for us to maybe ponder together, myself included. But does our attitude to work or money or investing or spending look any different from the world around us? Because this passage says that we should look different. We shouldn't be like the world when it comes to greed. Or perhaps considering contentment. Could you go 12 months without buying new clothes, or new tech, or new flights? Or could you even cancel a streaming subscription for 12 months and be generous with the money that you save? Could you plan to not always upgrade through life? I'm not sure if you notice that as you keep on getting more money, the expectation is that when you get something new, it's always going to be better than what you had before. Whether in clothes, or holidays, or tech, I mean, do you really need six cameras on your phone? It'll be 12 by the time you finish uni. Where do you stop? Maybe you could consider, well, maintaining a level or even downgrading the car you drive, the home you live in, the expectations you have for your holidays or the comforts that you have. 
I fear that we've all actually bought into the world's lies about greed. And so let us keep on reading the Scriptures. Let us keep on having God's Word shape and guide our hearts. Let us remember and remind each other that godliness with contentment is great gain and God loves a cheerful giver. Friends, don't distance yourself from the world, but let's be different from the world. And let's pray that that would be true amongst us. Heavenly Father, uh, Your Word is good, though it challenges us. It speaks deep into our lives. Father, we pray that we may be all that new lump of dough, that through Jesus' death in our place, we may be made completely new, free of the leaven of evil and malice, but shaped new with sincerity and truth by Your Gospel Word. Father, may we take sin seriously in our lives and in our communities, out of love and concern for one another. May we warn each other as we see each other walking astray. May we all have soft hearts eager to sit under Your Word and may we be able to encourage one another as we keep on wrestling with sin and seeking to put it to death. Father, as we've particularly wrestled with and reflected on the effects of porn and greed in our lives and our culture, Father, please grow us in purity, conform us into the likeness of Your Son, And may we value eternal riches far more than the fleeting pleasures of wealth and comfort. Father, please change us and grow us for your glory. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.